the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No way. We take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I am Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And today, Ross will be having a very nice lunch. (laughs) That's true. That's the biggest news we have. Uh, Yeah, a listener predicted this. Yes. When we did our last rounds of predictions for the year. Yeah. And a safe prediction. I think most of my lunches are nice and I'm looking forward to it. We are recording actually just past noon. So on September 4th, 2022, the big day. Congratulations. Oh my God. Thank you. A huge moment in your life. I've been waiting for a nice lunch all these many months. (sighs) What do you think you'll do? You actually, no idea. I'll go home and confer with Kara and see do we want to make a HelloFresh? Do we want to eat leftovers? Do we want to heat up something in the fridge? Or do we want to go out somewhere? We live in America. We're doing okay. We have so many options. It's a good time to be alive. Though, (laughs) I don't know why we're even talking about this. This is not important. But one hitch in all this is that now I have these invisible aligners on my teeth. Oh, you know, I heard a difference in your voice. I was waiting for you to very say something barely. about it. Okay. Yeah, very I could barely. see you registering. He's like, he's lisping, lisping very a little slightly, bit. yeah. I have had less than 24 hours to get used to these. So yeah, oh. still learning how to talk again. And I think in our next investigation, this will be worth talking about. So I, okay. won't, I won't even give details yet. But yeah, I have a dull ache on my teeth. And, oh, yep. Uh, I don't know if that'll affect the quality of my lunch, but I'm expecting it to be very nice. <laughs> I did uh, those aligners also. Now I just have to wear them at night. Oh, but at first it hurts. Very good. Anyways, that explains any lisping that I do. I'm still figuring out how to use my mouth. And thankfully, Carrie is doing most of the talking today. Uh, yes. Really, I'm doing most of the talking like three weeks ago because mm-hmm. we are releasing a talk that I gave at the Gray Faction Conference this year. Mm-hmm. So Gray Faction is an educational and advocacy organization, and their mission is, and I'm quoting here, their mission is to protect mental health patients and their families from dangerous pseudoscience and discredited therapies. I, I should also just mention they're affiliated with the Satanic Temple. Mm-hmm. It's founded by members of that group. And we talked a fair amount about that group in our conversation with Lucian Greaves. Yeah. So if you've listened to that, you may already know a bit about it, or maybe now we're making that connection for you. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention it because it can be such a distraction, the Satan thing, which is also my... <laughs> My big complaint with my <laughs> what my friends are doing. I <laughs> sure. love these guys. I think they're doing amazing work. But the Satan thing, I think, is like a whole other ball of wax. But you, I didn't want to yeah. not say it and anybody to be like, whoa, wait a minute. They're Satanists. Y- yeah, you always have to have that conversation to unpack. Wait a second. Do they believe in Satan? Which one is the Satanic Temple? Which one is the <laughs> Church of Satan? Yep. You have to separate those things. And there was a clever tweet I saw somewhere where... In the conversation, somebody was pointing out, no, the Satanic Temple doesn't believe in a literal Satan. Mm -hmm. And the interlocutor said, well, what do you call someone who does believe in Satan? And the answer was a Christian. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) touche. Yeah. Yeah, touche. 
God, that's really true, isn't it? Yeah. You, yeah, very... The, the only people in that whole landscape who actually believe in a literal Satan are Christians. Yeah. Oh, is that true? I don't know too much about the Church of Satan. Correct me, somebody, if I'm wrong. And only one person. Confer amongst yourselves and one of you send me... <laughs> <laughs> and make it sourced? If they actually believe in a literal Satan, but uh-huh. I don't, that's at least not even close to a mainstream belief outside of Christianity. Right, right. Okay, so Gray Faction, though, is, I think, a wonderful advocacy group doing this work that is unpopular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is very needed in mental health right now, but it touches on so many difficult topics that a lot of people don't want to deal with this. And so I really respect that these guys have stepped up to the plate. Speaking of stepping up to the plate, something that Carrie has done on this topic, it's something that you've looked into a lot. Yeah. And we've talked about a little on the podcast, mm-hmm. and we get a lot of very fervent responses when we do. Yep. It's always hard because you've done so much research into this topic for a book that you're working on. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to get off on the sidebar to say, no, 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 wait, it's not something I'm just casually familiar with. It's something I, Carrie, have done a lot of yeah. looking into. That's definitely true. And I, I don't like to rely on the argument that uh, I know a lot about something. Mm-hmm. That's this very squashing argument. And I've read X dozens of books. Right, yeah. Uh, it's like a really awkward way to make your point. But there's something to that, right? Like, I have spent the last three years looking at uh, articles and books from all sides of the equation. And in fact, far more from the people with whom I ended up disagreeing Mm -hmm. than from the people with whom I ended up agreeing. But it's an important point to say you're not just speaking off the cuff or or lightly. This is something you've considered quite a bit. Quite a bit. Maybe more than (laughs) anything in my life. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, that is to say trauma. That's what we're talking about. Trauma is the thing that my book is about that I'm working on. And this puts me a little awkwardly on the sidelines, but in a position where as much as I'm familiar with the relevant literature, I agree with your positions. Thank you. So Gray Faction has a few different goals. Uh, They want to draw attention to influential practitioners who champion pseudoscientific techniques and beliefs and educate the general public on how to be better consumers of mental health care. One of my favorite things that they do is they also report harmful pseudoscientific mental health professionals to their boards. And that is such tedious work. It's so much simpler to just focus on that education aspect and Mm -hmm. think like, well, we're getting the word out. That's the thing. We're raising awareness. Keep raising that awareness. (laughs) But reporting to boards is just paperwork and showing up to meetings. And like, it's so much hidden footwork and they do it. And it's the kind of thing where you say, okay, well, this person is clearly out of line. Well, why hasn't anybody reported them? Mm -hmm. Well, because it's a lot of work. So thanks to the people who do that work. Yeah. So here's just one example. They recently reported and helped revoke the license of this therapist named Tara Tully. She was a Utah-based DID therapist, Mm. multiple personality Utah. That's a little hotbed there. Yes, it is. And Hi, Jill Swan. (laughs) Though I must say, this is also everywhere in the United States, Mm -hmm. but but you're right. That's a pretty bad area for it. She has these satanic ritual conspiracy beliefs, but like many of these folks, she was hiding those beliefs, or or at least wasn't coming forward with them Mm. early in the therapy process. And then once her patients or clients had fallen under her way of thinking, then it starts coming out. And uh, the review board 
going over all of the evidence presented to them, said that one patient stabbed herself in the throat as partly as a result oh, of no. the distress she had experienced oh, from goodness. the therapy. It would be bad enough if she was espousing these beliefs, but at least people should know up front what they're getting into. Yep. And I'll tell you what, Ross, for this book, I have gotten undercover trauma therapy from a few different people and... I had this happen to me at least once where the person didn't appear to have any of these beliefs. And it took months, probably five months, maybe six of weekly therapy before I realized like, oh, you believe in government mind control. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm curious to ask more questions about (laughs) that, but I will avoid getting distracted. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So there will be another person with me on this talk. He will just come in and out, but his name is Evan Anderson. And he's the campaign director for Gray Faction. So uh, you'll hear me say this in the recording, but I asked Evan to join me because this is such dense information and it's so easy to gloss over something that might lose the listener if they don't have this Mm -hmm. swell of information, you know, already at their fingertips. Yeah. So it's like, stop me if I say something that might just not be clear to the average person. So he was there to do that with me. And even he's not quite the average person, which is why we're doing all of this kind of talk before the talk, just to hopefully get you up to speed for a talk that Carrie was giving to a specific audience of Grey Faction aficionados. Exactly. People who are already kind of into this stuff. But Evan has a bachelor's in psychology from Emmanuel College and a master's in psychology from Brandeis. And okay, what is this freaking talk about? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's about a very current figure, Herschel Walker, Mm -hmm. who's running for the Senate in Georgia Mm -hmm. and the elections coming up in November. So if you are in Georgia and listening to this, vote against this guy. (laughs) Well, at least listen to this and see what you think. That's a Ross statement. (laughs) I will. I personally will stand behind that. Uh, But yeah, the question that your talk is answering is where did he get his diagnosis for DID? Yeah. Dissociative Identity Disorder. That's right. So if you've never heard of DID, it's the newer name for what we used to call multiple personality disorder. And, you know, I haven't even looked to see what he's up to these days. I'm about to Google him and just see if he's done anything weird in the last couple of days, which is so possible with Herschel Walker. Oh, yeah. Did you hear the one where he was railing against the plan to plant more trees? Oh, because of the cold air moving from China or something? Yeah, the bad yeah. air from China will move here and our good air will move there. Mm. Uh, so why would we even bother making our air better here? But then I have to ask, why hasn't that already happened then if he thinks that the air is just constantly swapping places? Good for you for like following that and making your brain like make that a fact. And then, okay, if that were true, what else would be true? My brain just went like, all right, you're just talking. Your mouth is just moving. (laughs) Yeah, he's just one of these candidates who's shown himself to be uneducated on a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't stop him from holding forth and having very strong opinions, very much in the Trumpian model. And of course, Trump has been promoting Herschel Walker's candidacy. Yeah. But if you're not American and you're this all means nothing to you, this also will touch on just bigger themes of diagnosis and how it works and how diagnoses can also be misused. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening here. And there's a very fun kind of unexpected on-rack connection here because we had previously done an investigation on the very therapist who gave Herschel Walker his diagnosis 
one Jerry Mungadzi. Yes. You might remember that Jerry Mungadzi had Ross and I color in a coloring sheet of our own brains and then used that as if it were a brain scan mm-hmm. to decide what exactly the hell was wrong with us. And Carrie had traumatic past mm-hmm. indications in her brain mm-hmm. because she used the color green, mm-hmm. which is also sort of a coding for demonic presence. Yeah, whoops. In uh, Jerry Mungadzi's lore lore yeah that's the good word for it <laughs> and uh, and then i was homosexual because i had used a fair amount of pink and created the shape of a penis mm-hmm. and i think just a spectrum of colors in my brain he was getting a little too much homosexuality <laughs> from me and he was concerned mm-hmm. oh yeah because he's also against that but uh just to make it cherry on top <laughs> jerry mungazzi is also colorblind, colorblind. <laughs> So he had us color our brains in and then proceed to explain to him which colors we had put (laughs) into the brain. Just one of our favorite moments of all time. (laughs) Um, But if you want to go listen to that episode, it's actually a really fun live episode. Mm -hmm. It was probably 2019. So we will reference that a little in this talk as well. And by the way, I did just see what Herschel Walker has said recently. Oh, great. What's he doing now? (laughs) I, I just see this headline. Herschel Walker sparks outrage by calling inflation a women's issue. Quote, they've got to buy groceries. Herschel Walker shouldn't even be like he shouldn't even have a chance in this race. And it's Mm -hmm. just so it's so upsetting the amount of anti-intellectualism in America right now. And yeah. yeah, Anyways. And also everybody buys groceries. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) All right. Anyway, this talk is called Who Diagnosed Herschel Walker? Here it is. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Carrie Poppy, and I'm joined today by Evan Anderson from Gray Faction. Hi, Evan. Hello, everybody. It's me again. (laughs) So I asked Evan to join me because I actually attended a talk last weekend by a person you might call a conspiracy therapist. And one thing that I actually really liked that he did is that while his speaker was speaking, he was really engaging with her and sort of served as like a a surrogate audience member. And I really liked that format. And so I asked Evan if he would sit there and give me mm-hmm's and things and sort of break up the little bit of monotony from an online presentation. So uh, also Evan is brilliant and he will understand everything I'm talking about and maybe redirect me if I'm getting too caught in the weeds because there's so much to know about the subject matter and people come at it from such different starting points. It can be quite difficult to make sure everybody's getting clear on everything. So if I say something that to you, Evan, seems like maybe someone who's new to the subject matter wouldn't be able to follow me, please uh, be that person for me and tell me. Will do. Okay, cool. So who diagnosed Herschel Walker is the name of my talk. And Herschel Walker, if you haven't heard of him, is an American football player and now a candidate for or a nominee for United States Senate uh, for the Republican Party in Georgia. This is him right here when he was playing college football. He is a born again Christian. He is a retired NFL player. He was an Olympian. He played MMA, a very talented athlete, won the Heisman Trophy. He was on Celebrity Apprentice, Donald Trump's show before he was president, obviously. And he is a business owner who says he models his businesses after Donald Trump. So he's a, he's a big 
proponent of Trump's and Trump has supported him quite a bit in his race. He's also a, you know, staunch conservative and in a bit of sort of delicious irony, he has done several things that sort of go against his platform, like lying about his secret kids while also standing up for conservative values. Always a delicious irony if you're on the other side of the aisle. He also said he worked in law enforcement when he didn't, like may have lied about his college credentials. It, there's just sort of an endless well of somewhat funny Herschel Walker news. But he also has a mental health diagnosis that's quite serious that we're going to talk about. And this situation, while there's some funny things about it, at its heart, it's a really, it's a really alarming situation. And I I think it tells a larger story in a way that we don't often get to hear about these things. So I'm, I want to sort of draw your attention to how he got this diagnosis and what it could mean. So some people say he's a pioneer for mental health because he was diagnosed with something called dissociative identity disorder. I'm going to guess that a lot of people who are here for a great faction conference are already familiar with that term. Uh, but if you're not, it is a, a newer term for what you might know as multiple personality disorder. And he hasn't commented on this publicly in some time, but he was diagnosed in the early 2000s, and he would be the first person in the U.S. Senate or in Congress, broadly, to admit having this serious of a, of a mental disorder. So he's, so he says he's fighting stigma that, you know, and, and I can see this argument, right? He says that there's, there's no one else in his position who has tried to get this level of, of office. And when he is asked about his diagnosis, he treats it the same way maybe a person with depression would answer the question if suddenly on the campaign trail, someone stuck a microphone in their face and said, uh, I heard you have depression. Are you sure that you can handle this job? Right? We would find that obnoxious and offensive. And that's sort of how he's reacting to this. He can get kind of belligerent and his campaign manager will fight back at these sorts of questions. And it sort of presents a dilemma because we, we want to respect people's mental health diagnoses, right? And we want to respect their privacy. And then there are also diagnoses that are questionable and, do and questionable doctors who give them out quite freely. And I think that's the situation here. Mm -hmm. So just to give you an idea of what his life was like before he got diagnosed and why he sort of went on this journey to figure out his diagnosis, I wanted to show you this passage where he talks about playing Russian roulette. And just to break this up a little bit, I wondered, Evan, if you might read it to us. Sure. My desire to test myself and my limits led me to explore some of the darker elements of life and competition. I don't remember when I bought the gun. I was alone, the TV was on, but I wasn't paying any attention to it. Instead, I sat at the table with that 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. I bought it on a whim. I sat at the table with the gun in my hand, turning it over and over, watching it catch, and then throw back the light of the fixture above the table. I opened the chamber and slid a single round into it. I flipped it back shut and then spun it, like I'd see hundreds of guys do on television. I sat there some more, just thinking. I could hear the voice in my head telling me to go ahead and try it, that this would be the real test, the ultimate in competition. At first I resisted, but then I started wondering what it would feel like. What would it be like to beat death? What would it be like to die? 
I know that as a Christian, the things I was thinking were blasphemous, but sitting there with a gun in a single round chambered, I was thinking you could easily die crossing the street, slipping in the shower, choking on a piece of food. Was that how I wanted to go out or would I want to go out this way on my own terms by my own hand? I truly didn't want to die, but I was like a junkie looking for my next better high. I reached above me and flipped off the lights. I didn't want Cindy to come home and find me as the first thing she saw. Heavy. Thank you, Evan. Uh, So that is a passage from this book, Breaking Free, which is Herschel Walker's autobiography. And it's about his life with dissociative identity disorder. And I mean, the first time I read this passage, I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, I mean, assuming that this is a true story, and I think it, it mostly is, it really suggests someone who's in trouble, right? Like, maybe not the kind of trouble he doesn't seem suicidal right he seems just self-destructive and like engaging in really risky behavior um yeah uh and so he apparently was living his life like this for a while before he sought any help but he was experiencing all these things we would now call symptoms or he considered symptoms looking backward so he was experiencing what we call alexithemia, which means that you have trouble identifying your internal states. It's hard for you to name your emotions and your thoughts. It's actually a, a common symptom. He was hearing voices. He was feeling paranoid, feelings of abandonment, felt a certain pride about being a victim. He liked to use that as sort of a badge of honor. He found himself engaged in rigid thinking, losing self-control, super impulsive, uh, some grandiosity. So the sense that you're super powerful or all knowing, very emotionally volatile, has these self injurious impulses. And he was also and this this seemed to be the biggest problem. He was having these really acute rage fantasies. So he details these in the book, he talks about someone just cutting him off in the locker room, like literally cutting him off as he's walking, and wanting to chop their head off. Like, I mean, really, really severe reactions. Yeah. And then also sadism toward his opponents. So, I mean, when we're, that's like a big word, right? Um, When we're talking about athletes, like I'm sure most athletes have experienced something like, you know, I want to get them. But what he's describing is like, I want to inflict harm on my opponent so bad that whenever he sees me walking down the street, he runs and hides uh, things that, you know, seem unhealthy. And then this history of interpersonal violence and threats. He's very violent with his wife in the book. And he's pretty violent just with strangers, with his teammates, with his opponents. All right. And he even comes to feel some homicidal urges that he writes about. And, and this becomes a real problem because he has access to a gun. He's, he's in Texas where it's not hard to get access to a gun. And also reckless behavior and thrill-seeking. So there was this particular day that apparently the dam really broke. And this is why he went and got help. Uh, And I promise this is the only other really long passage. What would you read this to, Evan? What was about to happen made little sense to me then. And only now can I understand my actions at all. What's right is right. And what this man had been doing was wrong, way wrong. I could never abide by people taking advantage of someone else, especially me. Another part of me felt bad about putting Natalie, an innocent bystander, in a tough position and for alarming her. 
that didn't stop the downhill slide I felt, the rapid acceleration of my emotions. I stood in the weak February sunlight, pressing the button on the key fob, listening for the distinctive blip that would tell me which car keys I'd grabbed. I hustled over to the far bay and waited impatiently for the opener to raise the door, sliding behind the wheel of my Mercedes E-Class sedan. I felt like there was a war raging inside of me. I wondered for a moment if my Beretta pistol was still in the glove compartment. I'd been a licensed and registered handgun owner for years, had permits to carry a concealed weapon. The logical side of me knew that what I was thinking of doing to this man, murdering him for messing up my schedule, wasn't a viable alternative. But another side of me was so angry that all I could think was how satisfying it would feel to step out of the car, pull out the gun, slip off the safety, and squeeze the trigger. It would be no different from sighting on the targets I'd fixed at for years, except for the visceral enjoyment I'd get from seeing the small entry wound and the spray of brain tissue and blood like a 4th of July firework exploding behind him. The Herschel Walker who had driven to that house with murder in his heart and mind was not the Herschel Walker I had been for most of life. Something was clearly wrong with me, and I had to figure out what it was, and quickly. Yeah, okay. I'd want to figure out what it was and quickly too. Um, and so he drove to meet a therapist he had met before named Jerry Mungazzi. He had never had a clinical relationship with this doctor. He had met him twice before. One time was at a track meet and another time was at a party more recently. But he had this wake up moment, right? Where he was driving to shoot somebody and he realized that's not what he wanted, thank God, and stopped himself. And and it came to him, oh, wait, I know a psychologist. Maybe this guy has the answer for me. So he goes straight to Jerry Mungazzi. So Jerry Mungazzi is this man right here. And I'm sorry for the pixelation. There aren't a lot of photos of him. But he he also lives in Texas. He's an immigrant from Zimbabwe. He has a PhD from the University of North Texas. And he's a licensed therapist. He is practicing in the Dallas area. He calls himself a dissociative disorders expert. And just very briefly, dissociative disorders are a class of disorders that includes dissociative identity disorder and related disorders. And he owns something called Moongazi Trauma Programs. Uh, At the time of the writing of this book, apparently he was an adjunct professor. I'm not sure if that's still true, but that was at a Christian university. And he uh, helped establish a couple of dissociative and trauma disorder centers in Texas. So if you're not me and you're not Evan and you don't kind of know which buzzwords to look for, this guy seems legit, right? Like this is a, yeah, he, yeah, he went to Bible college, but like other than that, like this is a guy with a PhD from like a reasonably good school in Texas. He is a licensed therapist who could blame Herschel Walker for going to this guy for help. So I have gone to Jerry Mungazi. I have gone to his office and here's what's on his wall. So again, you look at all this, the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress, Dallas Bible College. Okay. Again a seminary. We've got a cross-section of the brain. That seems scientific. So who is this guy? I'm sorry, my dog is moving around on my lap. She's 15, so this happens. Okay, so 1982, he graduates from Bible college. Then he graduates from the University of North Texas with that PhD. And right away, he goes into an internship at a place called Care Unit in Fort Worth, Texas. 
So he outright says in one of his books, Right Brain Therapy, this one right here, um, he says, I was a little disappointed at first because I didn't think I was going to get to work with serious mental disorders. To my surprise, our patients were mostly drug addicts and alcoholics, um, which I, I think is the reality for a lot of people who go into psychology they expect to get these sort of shinier, more exciting cases where you're going to be dealing with, I mean, I, I, I kind of hate to say this, but like so, some people really want to work with, with people who have borderline or have schizophrenia or have these sort of more cinematic uh, disorders because it's, it's more interesting. It's more interesting for the therapist. So he notices, oh gosh, you just have like a bunch of people with alcoholism. That's not exciting. And at his next job offer, which is at Bedford Meadows Psychiatric Hospital, he tells them, well, what I really want to work with is people with bigger problems. I want to work with people who might have schizophrenia, people who might have schizoaffective disorder, or people who are hearing voices. And he says, I actually think that a lot of those people are misdiagnosed and what they really have wrong with them is trauma embedded forgotten trauma which uh, uh -oh. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so if you're here again i'm assuming that that already sets off a whole neural network in your brain of uh-ohs but just in case there is a notion in this in in a certain field of trauma research there is a notion that if you go through something particularly horrible rather than remembering it as one of the worst things in your life, you're actually more likely to forget it. The science does not back this up. It's unequivocal. It's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. But some people re remain very convinced about it, and he's one of them. So he goes to his new boss, and he says, I, I really think there's this hidden trauma epidemic. Could you give me patients with these very serious psychosis symptoms and I will look for their trauma histories. And at first, this new boss says, well, no, I don't, I don't even know like how to set you up with those clients. But I'll tell you what, if you can find clients and fill your client list, sure, okay. So Jerry Mangadze brags about this in his book. I don't think he knows how it sounds. But he says, uh, within a month, I had like a dozen patients who all had trauma. I, wow, way to go, Jerry. So he starts down this path of being very involved in dissociative disorders. And he works at Cedars Hospital in DeSoto, Texas, which is one of only, uh, only a few intensive programs for this at the time. One person that he treated was Volley, who is the, uh, she claims to be an Illuminati mind control survivor. Evan is the one who actually told me about that connection. Thank you, Evan. And he finally earns a license <laughs> in 1990. So before that, he just, he was a minister and he was an intern. Uh, so he could kind of edge his way in, but now he's finally got his own license. And so 1990 is a particularly exciting year to be involved in all of this. A lot is happening. The satanic panic has really been unleashed on the United States and Canada. McMartin Preschool was raised that year, raised to the ground, and that's when they were looking for those tunnels that I'm guessing y'all know what I'm talking about. And then a number of very influential books came out, like Secret Survivors, which has that famous trauma checklist. 
Banished to Knowledge, which was an Alice Miller book that posited that we forget the worst things that happened to us. And the Courage to Heal workbook, which was a follow-up to the Courage to Heal, which was one of the um, the biggest books that set off all of this. Okay, hang on, Past Carrie. You're talking about some insider baseball stuff here. Yeah. Let's clarify. Uh, yeah, what's this McMartin Preschool? Yeah, okay. McMartin Preschool was a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, where big elements of the satanic panic first emerged. Mm-hmm. The short version is that a mother thought that she saw evidence of her son being abused at this preschool. She told the preschool. The preschool looked into it, did their due diligence. But that due diligence included telling other parents to look for these supposed symptoms. And By that- asking children very leading questions about what the teachers had done to them. Yeah. So they a lot of these parents ended up taking their kids to social workers who were, I think, completely sincere, mm-hmm. wanted to help very much, but ended up accidentally implanting the notions in the kids and the parents that really horrible things had happened to them and things that became exponentially worse started out as the kind of horrific abuse we hear about all the time, like child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. and ended up with kids going underground to do satanic rituals where they were killing animals and drinking their blood, stuff like that. Or going above ground and getting in a plane with clowns and, you know, all of these things that school teachers can't afford to do. (laughs) So true. So pay your local school teacher better. But also they ended up looking for the tunnels under this preschool and and charging the people who who led the preschool with crimes and there was an extended trial and there was no evidence of anything not just the satanic stuff it turned out there was yeah. no evidence of any kind of abuse but there's still people debating about rappers or whatever it is that were found underneath the school and how could you explain those and they backfilled all the tunnels right. and yeah i can explain those but i won't do it here yeah, but yeah. yes yeah they're all explicable <laughs> yes yes they Without this and with that, and I just think this is really important to say, a lot of times people, once you enter Satan, it's the conversation that sucks up all the air and it becomes, well, of course that part wasn't true, but there was probably a kernel of truth there. There was no kernel of truth here. Truly, there was no kernel of truth here. The woman, the mother, it turned out she was a schizophrenic woman. She had a lot of paranoia problems. Mm. She saw something she really thought she saw. She went for help. And I think the responsibility of some of those people was to say, um, we don't see what you're seeing and Mm -hmm. we want to help you and we want to help him. And you're living in a very scary world where something is happening that's not happening. We want to get you out of that scary world because you don't need to live there. Yeah. And it's not inconceivable that that there could have been actual abuse and that this all of this got added as an additional narrative on top of it. Absolutely. Which would make it an even more complicated situation. And it's really tough. These aren't just free-floating claims without any emotional attachment to them. You're talking about abuse of children. These are really sensitive topics. And so it's very easy for us after the fact to kind of come and say, okay, all the fact-finding's done, and we realize that wasn't the case. There wasn't abuse. But I think tonally, sometimes people can feel like, oh, you're being dismissive of abuse and that that danger and, you know, listening to children's stories. And that that's not what's at issue in this case, Mm -hmm. uh, because all the fact finding has been done at this point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, It's really hard when you're looking at cases like this because you want to put it in the proper context of, you know, if someone comes forward with a concern like this, what are the odds? 
odds that the concern is true? We mm-hmm. kind of don't know the answer to that question. We can only look yeah. at each case by case. We, we really don't know. And the default position is to take it very, very seriously mm-hmm. and follow up all the leads. And yeah. in this case, it just uh, it got a little out of hand. Yeah. And that happens a fair amount. Okay. So also, I mentioned some books here. Uh, Secret Survivors, Banished Knowledge, The Courage to Heal, and The Courage to Heal Workbook. I'm just curious, Ross, because you're like pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. Are these titles familiar to you? No, they're not. Okay, even The Courage to Heal. I mean, I've heard of it, but okay, okay, I haven't read it. Okay, good. Well, then I'm glad we're, we're pausing. So The Courage to Heal was a, a book by Ellen Bass and Laura Davis that came out in like 13, I think, different editions. It's still oh. being released. There was a 20th anniversary edition at one point. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it posited that if you have... Any symptoms that might suggest that you have forgotten abuse, you probably have forgotten your abuse. Oh, okay. And you should sort of chase those symptoms and see what they mean. And it really, it destroyed a lot of families. Mm. Um, it's it's a scary, <laughs> it's a scary book. And I, I've read it and it's a very compassionate book. Mm-hmm. It comes from two people who clearly believe what they're saying, clearly want to help. It's It's just such an example of how harm can come from a good person. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. just from not looking at all the evidence. Anyway, still a popular book. And uh, there was also a, a workbook with it to help you work out like where your symptoms are and what they might mean. Oh, wow. And then uh, these other two that I mentioned, Banished Knowledge and Secret Survivors, are along the same lines. Secret Survivors has a very famous trauma checklist. Oh, okay. Can, yeah. You look at current things that you're experiencing, and if you hit enough of those boxes, you say, oh, this adds up to childhood trauma. Yeah, and in particular with Secret Survivors, it's explicitly child sex abuse, forgotten child sex abuse. Okay. So a lot of people took this quiz, said, okay, clearly I am your classic incest survivor, accused their dad. This is almost always how it goes. Mm. Accused their dad. And, you know, the family connection ends there. Mm. Uh, And then there's Banished Knowledge. That was Alice Miller. She was one of the first pioneers of this kind of thinking, this idea that you forget the worst things that happened to you, but they live on in your brain and body. Just hearing you talk about these issues and your research, I regularly now recognize this narrative in popular media. It's just, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It is, yeah. The idea that you can completely forget really traumatic experiences and then somehow recover those memories. I was listening to the most recent David Sedaris book, and he was talking about his sister going through that exact same process that you were just describing mm-hmm. and accusing the father. Wow. And all of the siblings were sharing notes and saying, well, what she's saying really can't be true. It doesn't mm. It doesn't make any sense. And he didn't have this kind of background knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting hearing him try to take her seriously, but at the same time sort of resolve this obvious conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's in society. It's a big deal. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's like the other side of it is sometimes people are really telling you the truth. <laughs> or I think they're always telling, almost always telling you the truth. But sometimes people are also right about what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find the evidence of it. That that happens. That yeah. happens. Oh, um, such a tough situation. Because yeah, you're right. Like you can't go back and get DNA swabs. And mm-hmm. you know, you can't replay everything. You don't have recordings of everything that happened in your bedroom growing up. You mm-hmm. know, oh, that's an awful situation. But we have to take this possibility 
seriously. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that happens, Mm -hmm. and it looks the same. So we have to do something besides just listening to the story. It's relevant to ask, when did you first start remembering this? Did you talk to other people about it beforehand? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I also just should mention that I am going to, in a couple minutes here, I'm going to mention my friend. And that's <laughs> that's the only term I use. I say, uh, I don't agree with my friend who Herschel says Walker. such and such. <laughs> no. okay. It's actually C.A. Myersburg. And the reason this happens is because the people watching along were looking at a slideshow and so they could see her name. But It's a beautiful slideshow, a perfect slideshow. Oh, thank you. You're making Trump hands? Yeah, I'm yeah, doing a little accordion thing. <laughs> perfect slideshow. Um, so uh, C.A. is a professor at Harvard. She teaches pseudoscience and mental health. And she also did research on people who have recovered memories of past lives. Mm. And so she's very familiar with false memory and issues surrounding it. Anyway, I'm going to mention my friend. Just know that's C.A. Myersburg. We'll put up Carrie's slides as an image gallery on our Facebook page. So feel free to go check out facebook.com slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C. But before we return to the talk, Ross, I also just wanted to talk to you about internet shopping. Oh, thank you. Finally. I mean, I've been putting up with all of this memory talk, Mm -hmm. but it's like, when are we going to talk about internet shopping? Uh, You got any good tips for me? Thank you for asking. Actually, today's episode is sponsored by Honey. Honey. Yeah, they're the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. I shop on both my iPhone and my computer. Damn. It's funny. I was talking earlier about my teeth aligners. Mm -hmm. When I went to go buy those, Honey was like, whoa, let me step in. Let me help you. I got codes for you. Okay. Yeah. And And did you save money? Yeah. I did save money, actually. Yeah, they had a lot of active codes. But that's what Honey does. It sits there in your browser or your iPhone. And when you are in your shopping cart, you're getting ready to check out, there's that little discount code box. And usually you're like, oh, I'm not special. No one gave me a discount code. Mm -hmm. But then Honey says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've got a few here. You want me to try them? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, yeah, go ahead. Give it a go. And it runs through three, sometimes like eight different codes And it will comparatively see how much money you're saving. And if you already have one that's better, it'll say you've got the best deal already. Or it'll say, here, we found one that'll save you some money. You want to apply it? Yeah. I always recommend that if you already have a code, go ahead and use it because that was... That's tied to a creator you want to support. That's what sent you there, yeah. Yeah, but uh, if you don't have one, yeah, exactly. But if you don't have one, here's a a backup plan. Mm -hmm. So when you check out, the Honey button just appears, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons and watch those prices drop. But Honey doesn't just work on your desktop. It works on your iPhone, too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. Yep, yep. Kendra, come on. And if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. Mm -hmm. By getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. I don't know why I took that sentence that had all the S's in it. (laughs) So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash oh no. That's joinhoney.com slash oh no. 1994, he receives an award from a Christian conference on ritual abuse. 1998... He starts a nonprofit called the Christian Society for Healing of Dissociative Disorders. And in 2001, he adds this guy, this guy on the right, James Friesen, to his board. Now, James Friesen is really relevant because A, he also works with Spolly, but B, he 
wrote a fairly influential at the time book about multiple personality called, let me look at my shelf of 175 trauma books. It's called, and I've read it too, uh, you'd think I'd know. It's called Understanding the Mystery of MPD. And in that, uh, he presents himself as a dissociative disorders specialist, but he has um, a fun little twist. He thinks that demons are real. He's a Christian. And so uh, a lot of the time when people have multiple personalities, yes, they really do have them, but also demons can kind of go in and take over one of the personalities, but not the other. So he's kind of made this little amalgam of theology and trauma. And so this guy joins the board and now during the Godzi is, you know, even more committed to, to these ideas. So Herschel Walker says, I have this terrible rage problem. Here are some other things I've experienced all my life. And I'm now realizing are maybe symptoms. What's wrong with me? And Jeremy Godzi reflecting on this later says, this same passionate sports hero would one day walk into my office facing perhaps the greatest challenge in his life, trying to understand what was happening to him. Herschel bluntly asked me, Doc, am I crazy? And so our journey together began. I have guided hundreds of people struggling with dissociative disorders on a difficult path to recovery. Man, like what a what a thorny bush <laughs> to walk into if you're Herschel Walker, right? I mean, I think something really was wrong for him. And you're in Texas, you're a Christian, you see this guy with like legit degrees and sincerely licensed, no particular complaints on his record yet. Can we blame Herschel Walker yet for any of this? I don't think so. Thank you. Thank you. Rhetorical question, real answer. So Walker's symptoms are, of course, immediately diagnosed as trauma. This is all just hidden trauma. And when he was acting out in these big ways and feeling so violent, well, of course, that was just an altar coming forward. That was one of his personalities that he wasn't terribly in contact with before or not conscious of. Maybe he was amnesiac to it. And so now it's making sense, right? So uh, Herschel at first is like a little skeptical of this, but this expert is sitting in front of him and saying, no, it makes sense that you would not remember what I'm talking about. It makes sense to me that you wouldn't understand that these are alters, but trust me, I'm the guy who deals with this kind of stuff. You have DID. And there was also this explosion of DID diagnoses right around here about 1985 to 1995. And if you're really interested in this period of history, I really recommend this book, Creating Hysteria. Are you familiar with this one, Evan? Yeah, I've read parts of it. That's a good one. Okay, good. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's really solid. It is of its time. It was written in 1999, so just looking back barely at the time, but but really sort of catalogs this moment in history where DID was suddenly everywhere, and it was mostly women getting diagnosed. So. Uh, I think this was probably really exciting for Jerry Mangazzi. He has this sort of famous male client who he can maybe give this diagnosis to. But Herschel Walker in his autobiography says, I had never even heard of DID. And I had no conscious awareness of there being multiple forms of me. I didn't have multiple personas existing in my mind. I wasn't calling myself other names. 
And still Jerry talks him into this diagnosis. He even says, I was skeptical at first. Uh, at times I denied I had it. I had uncertainty about it. I wasn't sure if what I was being told about myself was true. And uh, a couple of times he emphasizes that this book is kind of him coming to terms with it and trying to accept what this expert is telling him. Tragic. So Mungazi continues to tell him this is from trauma. And that means that you have forgotten it. Whatever it is that happened to you, it was so bad that your brain couldn't even store it. And that, that these things are usually the result of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. And unlike a lot of memoirs and autobiographies from DID patients, Herschel never gets specific about what he suspects that abuse or, or that trauma is. The way he writes around it does make me think he's talking about his parents, but he doesn't exactly point the finger at them. Okay, so all of those symptoms, guess what? They were just alters. Here are their names. Since he had already identified that he doesn't have characters going on in his head, right? He doesn't have Cynthia and James and Cornell or, you know, any of these, what we would think of as alters. Jerry says, well, that's fine. Your alters are probably more of the archetype category. So you have the mediator and the pain blocker and the sentry and the consoler and the judge. And this list becomes longer and longer and longer. And, you know, you read it and you start to wonder, doesn't this just sound like everybody, right? Like we all have different of ourselves and different ways of surprising ourselves with our thoughts and our behaviors. Right. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, if you can be the masochist, but also the sadist, like you're just kind of a person. right? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, uh, he sees wisdom here. So why doesn't he, he remember any of this? Again, it was too terrible to store. Uh, but he does have these sort of decomposed images, he says. So things that he can see just a faint glimmer of, and this will be familiar to you, Evan, that a lot of people in this in this position, they kind of get what you might call like an index memory. They have one thing to hold on to. And usually that will be something that's bad, but not that bad to them. What I, what I see a lot looking at these stories is someone who says, well, I know my dad was really terrible to me because I remember him, let's say, calling me fat a bunch growing up, which, you know, would be really painful and, you know, could be really devastating to your growth, but they'll go on. But I didn't remember how he also beat me. That, that was missing because that was so bad. And now that I've been thinking about it a lot and, and doing some work in therapy, now I'm starting to get just these glimmers of these scenes that are pulling themselves together. And it's bringing me more clarity about my relationship with my dad. So this is kind of the path he's going down. So <laughs> what does Jerry Mugazzi do if you have dissociative identity disorder? And this is the part where I think it's okay to laugh at this a little bit. Is his great treatment. You see that clipboard on the right with that colored in brain? That's my brain. I have colored it. And the reason I have colored it, oh, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. I think that one's actually Ross's, my co-host. So so Ross, my co-host on my podcast, owner Ross and Carrie, 
he and I went and saw Jerry Mingazzi while we were in Texas. We were actually there for an exorcism conference and he was a speaker. And so we were like, let's just go down the road and actually see this guy. And it turns out that what he does is he sits you down in his office. He hands you a coloring sheet of the human brain. He hands you a box of crayons. And he says, intuitively color in your own brain. So this is Ross's brain. So he just sat in front of a box of crayons and colored this in, just following his whims. And Jerry Mingazzi looked at this colored in brain and said, aha, okay, this part here is, I'm making this up, but this part here is the corpus callosum and you painted that orange and and that means that you had significant trauma in your childhood and this part here is pink and that suggests that you're secretly gay and this part here suggests <laughs> that you actually can hear special messages from god and by the end of this ross and i had both colored in our brains he let us kind of do this together and he had uh determined that ross was a gay prophet wow. that i had i had demons and repressed trauma and and this is maybe my favorite part that my brain was too pink and pink is a very emotionally volatile color whereas blue that's you know very wise uh, and uh centered yeah um, yeah yeah uh just saying the quiet part loud there a little bit yeah nothing going um, on there <laughs> yeah right so he he discovered this apparently in the late 80s and early 90s. He realized that some people were using colors to convey things they could not express verbally. And because he had taken a couple of neuroscience classes in his PhD course, he thought, well, cha-ching, just like have people color in their brains and we can figure out what's wrong with them. So this is how he is diagnosing people. Here I am. This one's my brain. As you can see, I'm not the one who works at Disney, Ross. But this green stem, he was very upset about that. That had something to do with trauma. My father was sort of suggested to be involved in that. As you can see, way too much pink, very emotionally volatile. Here's a few things that he found in my brain. Demons, creativity, forgotten trauma, uh, anxiety. (laughs) I love this. A falsely stoic presentation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Apparently he thought that didn't like seem emotional to him, but he had already committed to this pink interpretation. So I think he decided, oh, okay, she is emotional deep down, but she's like pretending not to be. Shout out to Ross at the bottom here, because as I was putting together this presentation, I uh, I asked him if he remembered what exactly was wrong with my brain, because this was 2019. And he went through the audio for me and found it. So thank you, Ross. Oh, also... Jerry Mugabe is colorblind. <laughs> you can't make it up. <laughs> so, sitting there, and, and we've colored in our brains, and we're waiting for the big show, and Jerry Mugazzi says, now what, what color is this? I'm like, that's yellow. Okay, and what color is this? That's green. And what color is this? And finally we're like, Jerry, are you colorblind? He's like, yeah, I'm colorblind. So just to make this completely unscientific process somehow even worse, he found a way. Now that's all fun and funny, but there are 
really serious downsides to this kind of nonsense. And this woman here, Jenny Rice, is a brilliant woman who came on our podcast and really bravely talked about her experience with Jerry Mangazzi. And what happened is that she heard our episode and then wrote in and she said, I couldn't believe I was hearing Jerry Mangazzi's name again. I thought I would never hear it again. I, I saw him in the 90s when I was a teenager. And I had no idea he was even still working because he was his, his methods were so nuts. But he told me I had multiple personality disorder and and started trying to recover memories in me, tried to convince me that my parents were in a satanic cult. My parents who had dropped me off at the therapist, my my parents who had signed me up for this whole endeavor that they were secretly part of a satanic cult. And fortunately, she had enough of that you know, inner sense of looking for evidence. And she, she said like something about this just doesn't add up that like satanic cultists would drive me to this guy who's going to like undo their whole plan. Um, That just, yeah, didn't make internal sense to her. So she was able to get out of it, but you know, not before it had really kind of fucked her up. And so uh, I recommend this episode. She's she was really afraid of like of people thinking she was too gullible, too foolish. And she's a professor now. And she said to me before the interview, she said, I I can only do this if if you're sure that there are still people being harmed by this stuff. And, you know, these these 1990s stories are the ones we get to tell right now because a lot of those people are kind of through the woods or some of the characters in them have died and just more documentation starts to emerge after 10 or 20 years. But this is all happening right now. I have been going undercover to get trauma therapy for my book. And I think things have gotten worse. I I think there's been a, yeah, I do. I think there's been a really sophisticated pivot away from Satan stuff, away from alien abduction stuff and toward a more loosey-goosey definition of trauma that kind of anybody can latch onto. But there is plenty of false memory building going on and there is plenty of sort of non-specific false memory going on, convincing people that their childhood was just really bad. And you don't need to know exactly how, and you don't need to know exactly why, but let's just sort of change your internal gut analysis of what you went through. And we know from cognitive science research, especially around CBT, that thoughts like that are incredibly powerful and they can ruin your mental health, just just thinking of your life in new ways in that way. So uh, this is... Jerry Mungodzi's wife threatening to sue me. Uh, she sent me this message on Facebook, just letting me know that he was going to to sue me for recording him, which is legal in Texas, and for like talking about him on my podcast as if that's illegal. So I I told her, go ahead. Here's our lawyer's email. Go ahead and contact him, and she never did. So why does this all matter? Something that I hear sometimes is, well, if people feel better, who cares what the method is that makes them feel better? I, I, I get where that's coming from, but I think it's a mistake because imprecise diagnoses have imprecise treatments. And 
when we think the cause is one thing and we chase down that alleyway and we totally miss what the real cause is, we're really, we're wasting people's time. And sometimes it has really serious consequences that might not be obvious right away. And so, so there's this issue of DID and, and the big question is, is it real? And I, I know I've heard Lucian speak about this. I'm not sure if I have with you, Evan, but I think that it's kind of a red herring to talk about whether it's real. That's just sort of a confusing term for this kind of situation. If what we mean is, are most of the people who have it lying, then I think no. I I think that most of them are totally sincere. Some of them are lying, but that's going to be the case with nearly anything, right? Um, But there is this, this disagreement in the professional field about whether we should even include this in the DSM-5. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that therapists use to diagnose their patients. Um, It is in there, but most of the experts I've talked to who actually deal with the research, they say, no, this is, this is not like a, a valid diagnosis that should continue to be in the DSM. And a lot of the best research is coming out of Harvard's psychology program, especially under Richard McNally. I talked to him about it. And I also talked to Cynthia Myersberg, who teaches pseudoscience and mental health at Harvard. And both of them said, no, I, this, it's, it's harmful that it's in there because it's misdirecting people away from real health. And there's also a really interesting brain scan study from 2012 that McNally did where he was, he and others were testing this idea of amnesia between alters uh, or between parts, as some people call them. And the idea here is that proponents of DID often say that their different personalities don't communicate with one another. And so that explains these gaps in memory because one part was fronting uh, while another was dormant. And then when this other part comes forward, well, she doesn't remember what Gloria over there was doing. And so in order to test this, they had to to design a very clever study where they, they looked at people's brains while they were doing a memory task. And they basically secretly taught them things So let's say I was in one part and her name's Janine. They would teach Janine a simple verbal task. And then when Janine went away and uh, Deborah came forward, they would give Deborah something that kind of suggested that task that Janine learned. And they found that all those same pathways were lighting up. The pathways that would, would suggest, oh, you have already learned this. It is there. And so it's very easy to look at that and say, okay, there it is. They're all lying, right? But it's so much more complex than that because we we have a situation here where people really are suffering and the people who will listen to them have given them this narrative. So you go, okay, well, I want that help. I'm really fucking toast in my personal life right now. And if all I have to do is fake this one little these these few little symptom clusters to get real help, why wouldn't you, right? So I, I suspect that's what's going on. I, I do just want to say outright, I'm skeptical of, of DID as being a valid diagnosis. I think that this is a, uh, a net that catches all types of different fish. I, 
I don't totally agree with my friend uh, CA here. Uh, she thinks that it's just totally, almost totally a culturally bound version of borderline personality disorder. I think that's a huge part of it. But I think as we'll see, uh, it's actually catching some other fish too. So people with, with DID diagnoses experience all sorts of things that we can explain with better explanations migraine, autism, ADHD, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, borderline personality disorder, bipolar, OCD, depersonalization, sleep disorders, anorexia. These all have overlapping traits with DID. And a lot of these uh, have uh, what we call comorbidity, which means that it's likely that if you have one of these, you have some of the others. So if you sort of invent this other category that collects some of these in one place, that can be really appealing to someone who now, instead of having four things, quote unquote, wrong with them, they have one, right? So here's what I think is really going on. And this is just a, this is just speculation, but I think it's better than Jerry Mungazi's speculation. <laughs> things in red that I've highlighted here, hearing voices, paranoia, loss of self-control, impulsivity problems, grandiosity, emotional lability, self-injury, rage fantasies, and especially all these violent things are very easily explained for a football player. There's something called traumatic brain injury or CTE that happens to people who play football a lot. Uh, so there was a study in 2017 in uh, the Journey of, Journal of the American Medical Association where they did autopsies on 202 dead football players and 87% of them had such significant brain damage that if alive, they would almost certainly be diagnosed with, with this problem um, called CTE. And CTE usually develops when you have one concussion and you continue playing and you basically kind of get a second concussion on top of the first one. That's usually what happens. Not in every case, that's a simplification. And NFL players is 99%, so 110 out of 111 of them. And the biggest red flag that suggests CTE is violent impulses that are uh, very different from your life before. So suddenly you're feeling a lot of rage. Suddenly uh, you find yourself violent in situations that normally would just irritate you. These are huge red flags. So what about then traumatic emotional injury? It can be tempting to say, okay, wait, you just said trauma. You just said trauma was the explanation. This is just a language problem. We used to use trauma in this very specific way. And it has, its definition has grown and grown and grown. There is just no good scientific evidence that emotional trauma can get you this far, can make you violent to the point of not being able to control it, having amnesia for your trauma, all of that is, there's just nothing. <laughs> anyway, if you want to know more about that, about the science, this is the book, uh, Remembering Trauma by Richard McNally. That'll, that'll do it for you, I promise. It's a great book. Yeah. Um, and he is so, so smart. Um, one of the smartest people I've ever gotten to talk to. And yeah, he's just great. Okay. So does this mean the therapists are lying? just always have to say this, even though I think this crowd probably knows the answer. No, 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 no. This whole story does not require deception. It really doesn't. Like you can pass on all this harm with zero malice. 
You could harm someone just by being unscientific, just by not actually checking the footnote, right? Not by not staying in contact with the research and being a clinician and, and having your really active caseload of 20, 30 clients and just never having the time to go around and second guess the shit you were taught in school. Like, of course. And we're talking about therapists. We're talking about people with huge hearts who usually go into this for not very much money and really think they're doing the right thing. So no, <laughs> the answer is the answer is no. And in fact, all of the therapists that I saw reporting for this book, I was totally convinced that they loved me, that they had they had like developed relationships with me and cared about me and wanted me to quote unquote get better. And this is this is just where their mind was. So how did this work out for Herschel Walker? Six months after his diagnosis, we know now because of some AP reporting from this year that six months after his diagnosis, he had the cops called on him because he was threatening his ex-wife with a gun and he was driving around to houses of people he knew and really creeping them out by like driving slowly by their houses and waving his gun. And his ex-wife who was with him when he published the book said that his rage seemed to get worse after his diagnosis, that she noticed more alters were coming out after the diagnosis. However, he says that he's healed. He has not gotten into much detail about in what way he's healed or what that means or whether he still has DID. What does being healed mean? He does go to a particular church in Dallas that does ex-gay therapy and miracle healings and things. So there's some reason to suspect that that's where he got his healing. Some people think it's that. I think, honestly, he's just sort of moved on. I think maybe he's just sort of got a little more of a handle on things. But it also does feel like a tinderbox, especially if he still has access to firearms. So what about Jerry? Jerry Mangadzi, his therapist. He's accepting clients. So if you want to interested? <laughs> if you want right brain therapy, if you want to color in your brain and find out you're gay, this is the guy. And uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> so that's it. That's who diagnosed Herschel Walker. Um, do we have access to the chat, Evan? Can we see? Someone did bring up a pretty good point about... Hmm. The CTE study that you referenced, they were talking about a potential donation bias uh, for the people who decided to donate their brains to the study were probably people that might have already expected that they had it unless the study took that into account. That's uh, totally fair. So there was a reveal series about that study in particular and reveal is put on by, um, it's a, sorry, it's a podcast series made by, I think it's the Center for Investigative Reporting. And they did look into that question. And I, I felt somewhat satisfied by the way they did. But I, I still think the point is valid. I think probably we're not looking at 99%. I also think we're probably looking at a much higher percentage than we want to be. But I, yeah, I think, I, think, I think the number is probably a little high. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you, Carrie. And um, My thank pleasure. you to the to the other presenters, uh, Lucian and Amanda. Thank you all for putting in the effort to uh, make this all happen. Thank you to all the caretakers at the estate, Ada, Lady, Mobius, and the others. Thank you everybody for coming and checking this out. Uh, it's always a great time and I'm sure we'll be doing it again soon.
So you thank guys you. are doing wonderful work. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Well, thank you for coming to my talk, Ross. Yeah, I was there live and uh, had a great time. Awesome. Yeah, it was a good conference. And thanks for that knowledge. Even though I've heard you talk about a lot of these things, there was a lot of additional information. No, good. I know you've got a ton of it rattling around there in your head. No, my God. Yes. And on spreadsheets. I wanted to mention this excellent point that someone made at the end Mm -hmm. that Evan repeated from the chat. You know, someone there pointed out the issue of donor bias, which is a great point. And I ended up removing a word from the original talk. I just wanted to point this out. This was in regards to football players having head trauma injuries. Yeah. So I had inelegantly said most people who play football a lot get CTE. What I should have said is people who play football a lot get CTE, which is still true. Mm -hmm. Um, From what I can tell, even on the conservative estimate, it's like 10%. Wow. Really, really not good. But they are right that that's not most. And uh, and we should be specific in our language when we talk about these things. So thank you to that, the, to that listener. The football players who do get those scans, typically because there's a suspicion that something has mm-hmm. happened, that they had some sort of head uh, trauma. Yeah, and not uh, just to clarify, it was an autopsy. So posthumous uh, yeah. testing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But you also made an interesting point about how that donor bias gives people sort of a shielding to not pay enough attention to this problem. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of those sticky issues of knowledge working both ways. So now that we understand donor bias, which is real, now people have downplayed the issue of CTE thinking, well, of course, of course, everybody who donates their body to CTE research probably has CTE, no duh, which is actually why this more recent study in uh, April 2022 went looking, okay, okay, everybody's making this point. So let's Mm. see exactly how big this is. And still they were like, okay, guys, guess what? It's still one in 10. Don't play football a bunch. Wow. Yeah. Big. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. I mean, I've heard a couple interviews with the people who do this research. And to a person, they say, I would never let my kid play football. Wow. Like, I would I would just tell them it is not allowed. So to all of our professional football player listeners, um, well, you're kind of in too deep now. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Hit us up. We're, we're, let's yeah, talk to you about I it. I realized I had no... <laughs> No useful recommendation. Your eyes just sort of go blank. (laughs) To all our football listeners, well, I started the sentence. Yeah, and hi. Part of that was kind of a joke. I don't. (laughs) I don't think of our audience having a lot of football listeners in it, but that those are not mutually exclusive. You're about to get at least one email. Good. I'm excited about our football (laughs) playing listeners. Exactly. I also just wanted to repeat something that C.A. Myersberg said to me once, which is regardless of whether a particular diagnosis is on the bullseye, the suffering is real. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that phrase, the suffering is real, really stuck with me because I think that's true. I think even in the cases of malingering, which is the fancy term for making up the thing that's happening to you, mm. even in those cases, which I think are relatively rare, that person is suffering from something so badly mm-hmm. that they're putting on this little theater show to get your attention and get some help. That's real suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think Herschel Walker, like, I mean, it's got to be really alarming to suddenly have no control over your anger outbursts and yeah. to feel like you're a different person. Like, that's got to be so scary. Right. And realizing I just threatened the person I love the most. 
mm-hmm. lethally. Yeah, that's that's awful. Yeah. And I, I think in all of this, we always need to be constantly realigning our thoughts and the way we're communicating about this to remember that we're trying to help people, mm-hmm. especially people who are suffering. And we want to protect victims. Uh, but sometimes people can also be the victim of a therapy, even from a well-intentioned therapist. Mm-hmm. And we just need to keep that possibility in mind. Yep. Um, also, I mentioned some books in this talk that I just wanted to pause and repeat because they're great books. One is Creating Hysteria, Women and Multiple Personality Disorder. That's by Joan Acachella. That one's from 1999. So, you know, it's a very specific moment in history, but it's really, really good. Hmm. And then Remembering Trauma by Richard McNally should be (laughs) the final word on repressed memory from a scientific perspective. It's a little academic because it's written by an academic at Harvard. (laughs) It's the guy who runs uh, the memory lab at Harvard. Is he a little academic? He's... average height okay uh he's pretty thin okay yeah but uh he's he's so wonderful i've been in near constant contact with him the last couple years and he's fantastic but his book remembering trauma is compassionate it is scientific and it is thorough and i would challenge anybody who's still kind of on the fence on this issue to pick up that book and every time we mention books, I mentally thank Tiffany Langan, one of our listeners who maintains a list oh, her, of yeah. every book we mention on the show. So I think we're creating more work for her. But thank <laughs> you so much. And I'm going to publicize that so everyone can access it. I like to call Tiffany Ross's house number 865. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you can call her Tiffany if that's what you want to do. I also want to thank my... <sighs> husband drew yeah who helped with some of the fact checking on this talk thank you drew thank you drew and evan evan anderson from gray faction doing such incredible work one of the smartest people i know one of the most compassionate and thorough and someone i just like always trust to not just say something because to to not just say something to say it If, Mm -hmm. if he gives me an opinion I can ask him like, oh, what makes you say that? And he'll be like, okay, you want to read this and this and this and this. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's just, he's really great. He's who you want to be doing this work and he's doing it for free. He's a volunteer. Amazing. Well, thank you, Carrie, for all the research you did and thank you for being willing to share it with our audience. Oh, my pleasure. I, I was listening to it thinking this would make a great episode. Yeah, you talked me into it. Well, Thank Ross for talking, Carrie, and to releasing. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> All right. A real hero here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did so much. Uh, you edited this, which will be its own. There we its go. Own task. That'll Thank be you. the rest of today. Well, that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. This episode was edited by the heroic, handsome, <laughs> smart, compassionate oh. Ross Vulture. <laughs> squirming in his chair. Stop it. <laughs> And our administrative managers, Ian Kramer. You can support this and all our investigations and talks and whatnots at MaximumFun.org forward slash join. So many fun investigations. We can't wait to tell you about all of the fun stuff we're doing right now and horrifying stuff we're doing right now. (laughs) So true. You can also support us by leaving a positive review, telling a friend, get the word out there, Mm -hmm. raise the consciousness. Raise awareness. Just keep raising awareness. Keep raising it. It's (laughs) higher and higher every day. (laughs) And remember, from actual Senate candidate Herschel Walker. You know, climate change. I'm going to help you all with that real quickly. 
And I'm going to do it in the Wrightsville way so you can understand what I'm saying. <laughs> we, in America, have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water of anybody in the world. Yes. So what we do is we're going to put from the Green New Deal millions or billions of dollars cleaning our good air up. So all of a sudden China and India ain't putting nothing in their cleaning that situation up. So all that bad air is still there. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air gotta move. So it moves over to our good air space. And now we gotta clean that back up. This week, the greatest discovery becomes Greatest Trek. That's because Greatest Trek is for way more than just discovery. We're the hit show on Maximum Fun that covers all the new Star Trek shows. Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Prodigy, Discovery, and any other Star Trek show Paramount throws at us. Come check it out for our funny and formative recaps of all the new stuff the Star Trek industrial complex churns out. It's in your podcatcher every Tuesday. Subscribe to Greatest Trek... It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. Hey there, it's Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. We host Tiny Victories, the 15-minute podcast that's about the little things. Getting into the tiny victory frame of mind is about recognizing minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. Isn't it a wonderful day when the first password you try actually works? When it's freezing cold outside and toasty as all get out in my shower, my tiny victory is that I turn off the water and get on with my day. We can't change this big dumb world, but we can celebrate the tiny wins. So join us on Maximum Fun or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get tiny! MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.